Hello and welcome to this final edition of Virtues for the Times, an IES podcast initiative where we have endeavoured to shed some light on the pandemic by considering public health responses, healthcare rationing, effects on communities, the role of religion, and some of the deep ethical questions and answers to be drawn out during these times. Whilst we've seen at times the worst of human behaviour, we've also witnessed great acts of courage, solidarity and love. Some of the better actions and responses we've seen during the pandemic, including those that are in need for improvement, support the notion that there truly are virtues for our time. Sometimes they're virtues in a classic or Christian tradition, and we can come to learn these anew. At other times, there are new kinds of virtues emerging from discussions in the literature, such as accountability or grit. One thing is for certain, the pandemic has allowed for some opportunity to look inwards, but this entails sometimes grief at the personal level and social distress on a wider scale. Issues ranging from a lack of adequate healthcare to deficits in the provision of basic welfare needs, sharp increases in domestic violence and poor mental health. And this may yet well be just the tip of the iceberg. Whilst there have been some commendable acts at the local and broader political level, there's also been some questionable behaviours at best and perhaps inexcusable actions and decisions at worst. What opportunity is there for forgiveness then? How well or poorly do we exercise such a virtue in private and public life? Can we forgive our political leaders? What's the role of love and forgiveness as we emerge, hopefully, out of the grips of this virus? Joining us to provide some answers on this topic in this concluding episode is Professor John Lippett, Director of the Institute for Ethics and Society and Champion of the Virtues for the Times podcast. John is a renowned Kierkegaard scholar and philosopher with research interests in the virtues, among other topics. He has a forthcoming book titled Love's Forgiveness, which explores the nature of forgiveness, including the relationship this has to other virtues, such as humility, hope and love. But John also unpacks some of the complexities involved in our understanding of forgiveness. John, thanks for joining me on Virtues for the Times. Pleasure to be here, Nick. And where to start? I mean, I'm curious to know what the role of forgiveness is in times of COVID-19. But as with any philosophical discussion, I think we best start with a definition of forgiveness, as this may be somewhat contested in the literature. So let's have a go at this first. Well, I think it makes sense, Nick, for this to be uh, relatively late in the series, the, the final kind of episode, I think, because forgiveness may become a live issue as we come out of the other side of the pandemic and look back uh, on, on the experiences of the last, uh, last few months. I think you're right to try to, to zero in on sort of like what we actually mean by forgiveness in the sense that um, forgiveness, I think, in everyday speech is sometimes used in a fairly loose kind of way. So I think one of the things that, uh, that, that there's plenty that philosophers who've written on forgiveness have disagreed about. But one of the topics on which I think there is quite a bit of agreement is the idea, the importance of distinguishing forgiving from actions that might look rather similar to forgiveness, but I think need to be distinguished from it. So for example, most philosophers have agreed that to forgive something is distinct from condoning it, from excusing it, from justifying it. So we might say kind of, well, consider the situation so that actually there's nothing to forgive here. Uh, and I think that one, one of the key uh, distinctions that drawing those, uh, those lines is an attempt to capture is the idea that mm. if forgiveness is going to be, if we're going to be in the territory of forgiveness, then 
we're looking at where one person has done another person some kind of moral harm. Okay. So we're recognizing that a wrong has been done, a wrong has been committed, and moreover that that wrong is culpable or blameworthy. And it's only in that, against that kind of background that we can, I think, talk about forgiving that wrong as opposed to condoning it or excusing it or something like that. Okay. So one of the key things that, uh, one of the key views of forgiveness has become dominant in the literature is to think of forgiveness as being the transcending of some kind of negative emotion or other. And there's various contenders, uh, resentment, indignation, anger. So resentment, I think, uh, is, is a really useful notion to think of here. And we might think of forgiveness as being the overcoming or the transcending of warranted feelings of resentment, right? Where there really is a wrong that has been done. Uh, I might legitimately resent that wrong that has been done, but forgiveness is whatever else it may involve. Part of what it involves is that process of getting beyond those warranted feelings of resentment. So a moral harm that is culpable or, brain, uh, or blameworthy, in w uh, which uh, brings about legitimate, warranted feelings of resentment, uh, which I'm trying to get beyond. That's about as close as I can get, for starters, as right. a definition of what forgiveness might mean. Already, as you're explaining that, it sounds, it sounds quite complex to me in terms of getting the pieces right. So I'm hearing there needs to be a wrong done. There needs to be sort of the the capacity, the willingness to forgive that that wrong that wrong action being done, uh, but then there are all these feelings that are, that are tied up with this, like resentment. I mean, is that something that always comes with having to forgive someone? We can explore that a little bit further, but when it comes time to forgive someone, some might think that it suffices uh, that we just accept the mistake of the the wrongdoer and then just get on with things. But others may, may want to see that the, the wrong action be remedied somehow. And, and I believe in the literature, this is kind of a, a distinction between a kind of conditional and unconditional forgiveness. So tell us a bit about how that works, John. Yeah, I think that is a really uh, important distinction you're, you're bringing up there, Nick. So one thing, one way we might think about this is think about, well, okay, who has the standing to be forgiven? Right, there's a discussion in the literature about who has the standing to forgive, who has the standing to be forgiven. So. That distinction between conditional and unconditional really demarcates two views about who has the standing to be forgiven. On one view, for forgiveness to be appropriate, uh, certain conditions do have to be met. So the wrongdoer has to, uh, and, and this gets glossed in various ways, but the, you might think the wrongdoer has to do some version of apologizing atoning or repenting for the wrong. And it's interesting that even in purely secular discussions of forgiveness, you tend to get this sort of like uh, religious terminology about atoning, repenting, right. uh, to make amends. So on, on one kind of view, you have the idea that only when some combination of these views, of these uh, things have been met, these conditions have been met, only then is forgiveness really kind of uh, appropriate. On another view, where forgiveness at its best is unconditional, we've got the idea that, well, actually, no, uh, forgiveness at its best, uh, forgiveness can be legitimately offered preemptively, right? So before any apology, atonement, repentance, uh, and all the rest of it. So on that view, you have this image of forgiveness as a kind of gift. It's a gift that's offered by the wronged party towards uh, the wrongdoer. And it's kind of interesting, this, that, I mean, we have this in the English language, forgiveness and the idea of, uh, of gift or giving, 
built into the terminology. It's kind of interesting that that's not a mere quirk of the English language. You've got the same thing in, for example, French, donner and pardonner. One of the words in German for forgiveness, uh, geben, to give, and vergeben, forgive, forgiving. Danish uh, is the same. So it's interesting that a whole range of European languages, you have this connection between uh, uh, forgiveness and some kind of notion of, of gift. And I think what's significant about that is that you get some of the, the psychological literature on forgiveness, particularly at the kind of pop psychology end of things. There's, for example, one book called Do Yourself a Favor, Forgive. There is quite a bit of uh, psychological uh, research that does kind of suggest that there are therapeutic benefits. Right to the wrong party, to being able to forgive, to being able to kind of let go. Letting go. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that's an important dimension. But we might think that forgiveness, if I, let's say you've wronged me in some way, uh, and I kind of, I've, I, I've nursed this resentment against you for years, but my therapist kind of says, no, now it's really time to let go, John. You do yourself a favor, forgive. We might think there's, there's something really incomplete about that, that my forgiveness is better if it's done for you. Right. It's done for, the, there's the giving, the gifting part, right? The gift of forgiveness that is, at the very least, has a kind of sense of uh, goodwill towards the person that I'm kind of uh, forgiving. So there's an extraordinary example. Um, uh, I'll go back to my own national heritage and like sure. draw uh, uh, on a UK kind of example. Um, the Enniskillen bomb. Uh, the, the, the IRA bomb of a town in Ennis, a town called Enniskillen in Northern Ireland, 1987. Uh, there's this incredibly moving uh, account given uh, in an interview with the BBC by a guy called Gordon Wilson, who uh, speaks very movingly of both he and his young do his uh, daughter were. Uh, he speaks very movingly about he and his daughter being uh, buried in the rubble of Enniskillen and, and knowing that she was dying and them saying their, their, their goodbyes. And I think it was a, maybe a day or so after that kind of event that uh, Wilson gave an interview to the BBC where he said, uh, I bear no ill will towards these men. I bear no grudge. I will pray for them tonight and every night. So this is in advance of any kind of apology uh, from the IRA. Um, it's, uh, now, this was widely interpreted as an act of forgiveness, and it struck people as, as absolutely extraordinary in terms of the ability to, 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 to do that uh, in such a, such a kind of a circumstance. But that sort of generosity of spirit towards the person uh, or, or, or the parties kind of forgiven does really strike us as extraordinary. And that would be, a, I think, one kind of... Uh, illustration of this idea of forgiveness as being this rather extraordinary kind of gift. Now, I think the Wilson case gives us, that's one way in which I think that's an interesting example, is that I think it can be that unconditional forgiveness is not, um, it, it, doesn't vi it, it doesn't necessarily violate justice. It doesn't sort of like, it doesn't sort of let go in the sense of, you ah, oh, let's pretend this never happened. So I think there can be such a there can be a kind of unconditional forgiveness that can still hope for apology, repentance, atonement uh, on the part uh, of the wrongdoer. But the crucial point is that those aren't set up as conditions for forgiveness. So in other words, it isn't the kind of idea that I'll forgive you if and only if 
you meet these kind of conditions. And I think sometimes forgiveness can be a catalyst for uh, that kind of uh, that kind of repentance. Right. That sometimes, when offered that kind of forgiveness, it can be precisely that that inspires a willingness to repent and atone in certain circumstances. I see. And it's the unconditional view that you're describing at the end. However, it, it can inspire people to want to repent or make up for you know their, their wrongs. No guarantees, but right. sometimes, <laughs> okay, sometimes, sometimes. Right, yeah. right, right. At least, at least, there's that opportunity. I mean, the, the ex example that you uh, describe there in the situation of the, you know, the IRA bombing is extraordinary and, and exceptional that someone would, would kind of have, hold that view. And so I want to unpack this a little bit more, but just before doing that, because this is a podcast on, on COVID, let's shift to our current context here, because it strikes me that if that's an exceptional example that you've named there, I cannot think of a kind of attitude that's um, at the moment that, that's been exemplified in that way. And I'm curious to know what the role of forgiveness is at, at this time when I see a lot of finger pointing going on. It seems to me anyway, we do this kind of finger pointing quite judgmentally. We might even say self-righteously. Why do you think this is so, John? Am I reading this at least somewhat correctly? Uh, I think there's an awful lot of self-righteousness around, Nick. Um, and I think it is interesting to ask about why that might be. Uh, I think... I do think that a tendency towards self-righteousness is a very common uh, human trait. Okay. Uh, and I think that this is perhaps worsened in a situation, just to allude back to one of the earlier uh, podcasts in this series, your discussion with Tim Smart about um, epistemic bubbles and echo chambers. Yeah. So I think our online environment perhaps exacerbates that tendency for us to be, be self-righteous in, in, in uh, various kind of ways. And I think given that forgiveness arises precisely in contexts where a moral harm has been done by one party to another, I think that's what's significant. So, you know, whether that's the, the irresponsible uh, individual action in terms of people to like breaking social distancing rules and they're therefore passing on uh, the virus in that context, uh, whether it's uh, a culpably inept government response uh, to, to COVID, and we may discuss this idea about political forgiveness uh, later on. I think forgiveness by its very nature, at least with regard to the particular wrong that we're talking about, has a certain inbuilt moral inequality, right? So, so the, the kind of sense is that, again, so like if, if I've wronged you in some way, then at least with regard to that wrong, there is, there is a moral inequality between us in that the wronged party stands uh, in a certain, uh, on a kind of higher moral plane, at least with regard to this one particular wrong than the wrong. It's almost like a power relation there. And the power relationship, I think, is really important here because I think forgiveness can be, uh, can be exercised as a weapon of power. One of my favourite philosophers, Kierkegaard, has a lovely phrase about this where uh, in, in his book, Works of Love, he says that sort of like only love has sufficient dexterity to get beyond that kind of uh, power relation. So because it has this, in, this inbuilt power relations and moral inequalities built into them, it's very easy to see how self-righteousness can take root. And that self-righteousness, I think, is uh, very often a kind of block to being able able to forgive. I think this comes out really nicely in, for example, I got interested in writing the book in a number of the New Testament 
parables and stories and passages on forgiveness. And think about, for example, the parable of the prodigal son. Right, so we all know the story. The the young guy is like uh, blown his inheritance on wild living or whatever. Comes back with his tail. Yeah, yeah. Not the inheritance, but the wild living idea. I'm sorry to say. Comes back with his tail between his legs. No idea whether you did that or not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the father you know, uh, kills the fatted calf, celebrates his son's return or whatever. Now, one of the interesting characters in this story, I think, is the elder brother who effectively goes to the father and says, wait a minute, you know, I, I did the decent thing, I stayed, I, 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 I was the, the responsible kind of elder, elder brother. And, and that sort of like sense of his own self-righteousness there is, is provide precisely what prevents him kind of like from enjoying uh, the, 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 the younger brother's return to the fold and enjoying the fact that, uh, you know, taking pleasure in the fact that the guy had seen the error of his ways uh, and so on. So I think that we that this idea that self-righteousness is a, a, a kind of barrier towards uh, forgiveness is a really important theme, I would suggest. It's like yeah. the, the, the focus on the self, but also one side of this could be a, a lack of being able to view things charitably at times. Uh, yeah. I mean, this doesn't tell the whole story, but there's something in that that we, that we might explore. You did mention a previous episode uh, where we discussed uh, echo chambers, and one of the, uh, the virtues that came out in this episode was, was humility, a sense of intellectual humility. And again, at a time in a time like COVID, do you think there's been any or not, not, not much of a dose of, of this sort of humility? And what's the relationship between forgiveness and humility, do you think, John? I think we've seen this, this on occasion, but humility, yeah, humility is a, is, is a rare and precious virtue, it's a, uh, it, it seems to me. What interested me about this would be, okay, to be a, a kind of forgiving person, what other virtues one, might one need to possess in order to maximize the chances of having that kind of virtue? Humility emerged as, as one of the important answers to that question, right. I think, in the sense that I think it is a sense of humility is one of the things that enables to get beyond uh, this, this sense of uh, self-righteousness. So maybe part of that might be the recognition that although with regard to this particular wrong, I stand in the moral high ground, there are all kinds of uh, cases where, okay, so if, if I'm the wronged party on this occasion, there are all kinds of other occasions in which uh, I'm the person who is the wrongdoer. Mm -hmm. And just the, sort of like the recognition of that, that our, our kind of our flawed common humanity, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, and in those kind of circumstances, I wouldn't want to be reduced simply to my wrongdoing. And that therefore, kind of like, why don't I, I, I apply that same thinking to the person that I'm, I, I'm trying to forgive in this other kind of situation where I'm the party uh, who's been uh, wronged? And I think in Christianity, you have this uh, very powerful kind of idea that the gra you know, my sense of myself as a sinner and my gratitude for the fact that I, my sins have been forgiven yeah. uh, might be precisely... Uh, the catalyst that enables me to be able to forgive others. So I think yeah. that's that's part of the story. Um, I mean, I'm very interested in reading your forthcoming book. I believe it's coming out in in about September. Is that right, John? The, yes. The, yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, very exciting times. In this book, um, one of the themes uh, is agape. Broadly speaking, a love that's other focused. Um, so we've kind of we've touched on charity and and sort of that that kind of disposition, but. What would be the relationship between love 
and forgiveness. And how important is the notion of um, you know, this other focused or loving one's neighbour, as, as, we, as we might put it, um, to, to forgiveness? Is, is this a fundamental part of forgiveness? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a really important question. Uh, and I think it was one of the questions that started driving the book, actually, as I, as I delved into a lot of this uh, philosophical literature uh, on forgiveness, was how would our view of what forgiveness was and what we ought to be saying about it, uh, how would that look different if we thought of forgiveness as first and foremost uh, what Kierkegaard would call a work of love. So uh, that's, in one sense, one of the questions that drove the book. Um, and I think the notion um, found in Judaism and Christianity uh, of the importance of, uh, of the neighbor and love of the neighbor, I mean, I think so like that, that in a secular context, that notion of a common humanity may play or, or aim to play something like uh, that kind of role in secular contexts right. as opposed to, right. to uh, religious ones. Um, and I think key to this is the, the ability to see, the, so again, if, if I've been wronged in some way, key to this might be the ability to see the other person in a broader, a broader kind of scope than the way in which they've, they've kind of harmed me. And I don't want to make light of this. I think in, in, very, in serious cases of harm, this is an extraordinarily difficult, uh, difficult task. But I think quite key to it is, is this notion of what, uh, in the book I explore this idea of what some philosophers have called love's vision. So the idea about the way in which uh, the eye of love, a loving attitude towards someone, and we, we, we're talking predominantly here about uh, love in the sense of uh, agapic neighbor love, yeah, kind of like, yeah. uh, but that the eye of love can see what the eye of judgment, and even that perhaps of neutral detachment, can't see, right? So, so you think about sort of like that it may take a kind of loving vision to be able to see uh, the talent in a youngster that everybody else has overlooked or, or something like that. And I think the one, one way in which this comes out interestingly in the discussion of, of uh, forgiveness is one of the memoirs I explore in this uh, book is Sister Helen Prejean, the, the Catholic nun, uh, and her, her book, um, Dead Man Walking, famously yes, made into a film film in, in the 90s. But Prejean as a kind of spiritual advisor to uh, death row inmates, so murderers, rapists, or whatever. One of the things that I think is really admirable about Prejean is her ability, people who have committed the most appalling, egregious kind of crimes, her ability to see... Uh, to see beyond their crimes, to uh, in a way that a whole other people have, have written them off, you know, seen them under these descriptors of murderers and race, uh, uh, rapists. Um, the way in which love, her loving eye, seeks for the best uh, in the other, uh, and there's one particularly moving case of her relation to a guy called uh, Pat Sonnier, who um, says to her that kind of it's 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 a great shame that a man has to come to prison in order to be able to find out what love means. Um, so I think what's significant uh, about Prejean there is, is her ability to see, to see them beyond this descriptors of murderers, rapists, wrongdoers, or, or whatever. Uh, and what's particularly interesting is the idea that kind of like Prejean sees this as, Prejean, although she's a campaigner against the death penalty, she never for a moment denies that these people 
need and deserve to be punished. So what you have there is the idea that you sometimes get the idea that there is some inconsistency between forgiving someone and uh, supporting uh, legal or social punishment of some kind. Some right, kind. Okay. Right. Prejean, I think, is a very good example of why that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. So, yeah, I think what you have in Prejean is the idea of a love, a neighborly love, that has room for justice. So I got very interested in the book in a distinction that the philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff has made between uh, two kinds of agarpism, two kinds of uh, agarpic love in this context. So Walterstorff talks about uh, benevolence agarpism, which is kind of roughly the kind of idea that agarpic love trumps justice, right? So in any kind of situation, the claims of love override the claims of justice. Mm. And it's important to uh, Walterstorff, and I think he's right about this, to talk about a different kind of agarpism, which he calls care agarpism, where you have a kind of love that has justice built in, a kind of agarpic love right. that has justice built into it. It's integral. Yeah. So, so the thought here would be to genuinely love someone who has done wrong might involve supporting that which enables them to come to see the error of their ways. Remember? So, so legal punishment, or perhaps in some contexts, social punishment, you know, uh, a, a kind of, uh, a sort of punishment that is a kind of like social disapproval, mm. if it's a kind of, you know, a wrong that falls short of the, of being a crime, yeah. right? So, but, but it may be, it may, not only may there be no fundamental inconsistency between love and justice here, rather what it might mean to love someone in some kind of contexts would be that you love them in such a way that you enable them to see what they've done wrong and you know cause them to see the error of their ways right. in a certain a certain kind of way so it's a little bit different from the conditional uh, the conditional forgiveness right. Right? precisely kind of, precisely there's some clo there's, there's some actions that we want to see occur here but it's not like I will not forgive you if you don't do these actions. Exactly. It's a sense of bringing the person in back into justice, into a just state, perhaps, we, we might say, you know, into, into a kind of sense of the better part of themselves. Yeah, so um, I, th I think that's a good point. And I think that that's another illustration of how we, th this might be a sort of territory in which we see the ways in which different virtues are related to each other, right? So another virtue for which we might need to make space here is the idea of hope, right? right? It, it, for precisely the reasons that you're just kind of you know, suggesting. So it's the difference between saying, these are conditions, like I will forgive you if and only if you meet these conditions, versus the idea that no, I don't set these forward as, as conditions, but I, I, kind of, I kind of come to hope, you know, what, what I do is hope that you will come to see uh, the error of your ways, or whatever it may be. And certainly that's what I think is going on in Prejean's relation uh, to, to Sonnier. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious actually um, with this, I'm, and fascinated by the way in which storytelling formats give us a different angle uh, into this picture of human flourishing. And you've used a novel, a memoir, I believe, in, in your book. Tell us, for example, and you've mentioned Dead Man Walking already, but tell us, for example, how a novel like Atonement um, also help us, helps us to see these dimensions of forgiveness. Yeah, I, I kind of I think that these these rich extended narratives are really important to kind of to try and think through this kind of uh, territory. 
I think philosophers often have a tendency towards maybe excessively uh, abstract kind of uh, examples. And I think uh, memoirs, novels, and so on are very good correctives to that, uh, that sort of tendency. Uh, atonement is really interesting because it, it shows that, that, the, that being able to uh, forgive oneself Sometimes it's done too easily, but on other occasions, uh, it might be the most difficult thing to do, right? Yeah. It yeah. might actually be, I might be able to accept someone, someone else's forgiveness of me for the wrong that I've done them, and yet still be able to, for, uh, uh, unable to forgive myself. Yeah. And in atonement, you have the, uh, I mean, I don't know how much of detail you want me yeah. to go into, yeah. but there is this... Um, uh, the, it, it's narrated by uh, a novelist uh, called uh, Bryony Tallis, and the whole book is about uh, the, the wrong that she did to her elder sister and uh, her elder sister's then boyfriend uh, as a result, ultimately, of her own self-righteousness, right? She, she witnesses this scene of... Um, her sister and the boyfriend having sex, uh, which is actually consensual, but she makes the assumption that in fact he's forced uh, himself on her sister. Later on, there is uh, a, a cousin, I think it is, uh, another teenager, a 15-year-old, who gets raped uh, in a house, a house party by, it turns out, a house guest, but Bryony, because of having put two and two together and, and got five uh, in terms of the relationship between her sister and her then boyfriend, she makes the assumption that the rapist was, was probably the, uh, the sister's uh, boyfriend. And she convinces herself that she's, despite the, the darkness of uh, the occasion on which this happens, she convinces herself that um, she has, you know, she's in some way seen what happened, that she knew it was his. Despite these kind of moments of self-doubt about, did I really see it? Was the light, did the light really allow this, whatever? She puts two and two together and gets five, and this has disastrous consequences both for the boyfriend and the uh, elder sister, who crucially, at the time of the narrating of uh, this lengthy process of being able to forgive herself, they've both died in the Second World War. So this is an illustration of how self-forgiveness might be all the only possibly the only possibility that you have uh, when the people who were in a position to forgive you have died. So that I think is another kind of dimension that uh, we, we we haven't really touched on this idea about self-forgiveness. But the real point that I want to make is that how self-forgiveness. Atonement shows that self-forgiveness can be this really complex, decades-long process, that it needn't be this way of letting yourself uh, off the moral hook, and that it can be, in some cases, even more difficult to achieve to yeah. forgive yourself than it can be to accept forgiveness from someone yeah. else. Forgiving oneself, I mean, I think it, it, it sounds to me like it's tied to uh, something very interesting that you said at the beginning. One, one might find it easier to receive forgiveness from another person, but then forgiving oneself, um, you know, how do we accept that, that gift of forgiveness and from whom, you know, is the sort of question that I, I find asking myself. Now, going back to COVID, John, um, because it'd be, it'd be 
fascinating to, to stick with these um, literary examples. I, I could do this for a while. But um, we, we've sort of been considering forgiveness in the context of, of COVID. I'm wondering what, what we can say more broadly about this virtue uh, at this time. And I can imagine there's been some disagreement about our actions and how we've responded within our families and communities. But there's also been disagreements at the political level. What's the role of forgiveness here at this level? Uh, to me, it seems we need to get something right about the kind of actions that we're judging. And there was a little bit of that in, in atonement as well. But yeah. yeah, we need to get this part right. Um, but yeah, how does, how does forgiveness play out in, in the political context? Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting question. Um, I think this is maybe an illustration of where um, the job of philosophers in respect to this is not to tell you what to think about this, oh, but to kind of clarify some of the questions that you might need to consider in coming to uh, uh, your own verdict about where uh, forgiveness fits in the current kind of situation. So in the wake of COVID, I mean, it seems to me as we, and this is kind of, as I alluded to at the beginning, I think this is very early days in thinking through about, well, actually, does forgiveness apply in this context? And if so, how does it apply? So here are some of the questions I think we might need to ask ourselves in uh, getting uh, clearer on that for ourselves. So the more complex cases, perhaps, that you're kind of alluding to are on this political kind of, kind of level. So let's take, uh, say, for example, someone who has lost their job as a result of uh, lockdown. Right. Some of the questions there that I think we might need to be asking ourselves is, well, Okay, has a wrong been done here? If so, was that wrong culpable or blameworthy? Or was it, you know, the least worst policy available to a government or, or whatever? That, that may be an important kind of question. So in that case, uh, the, the distinction that I made right at the beginning between forgiving and, say, excusing would become irrelevant. Because, you know, it, if we kind of come to the conclusion, actually, this was simply the least worst policy available to the government, we might be thinking about this is something that needs to be excused rather than actively uh, forgiven. Right? That, that may be kind of appointment. But let's take some other cases where uh, we might reach the conclusion, well, actually, the government does deserve some kind of blame for, for what's, uh, what's kind of happened here. And I think there's a plausible case that my own country, the UK, yeah, right. the government may have... Uh, uh, a great, uh, the Australian government, it seems to me, has handled this better than the UK government uh, has. Uh, and that, I think, is borne out uh, in, the, in the figures. So the UK government, as we've discussed before in this series, or others have discussed before in this series, uh, your interview with Xavier, uh, flirted for quite a while with this idea of uh, responding to COVID in terms of a notion of like herd, herd immunity. And I think at least part of the, 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 the terrible figures in the UK are a result of it having acted too slowly in these, in these uh, kind of cases. So we might think, again, this is, one could uh, agree or disagree with this, but there might be an, a plausible case to say, well, no, there is a certain degree of blame that has to be attributed to the government in terms of its, its slowness, slowness uh, to react and its, uh, its slowness to, to change uh, policy. And it seems to me that there is a really interesting question there about uh, this question of who has the standing to forgive, right? So we've talked about basic interpersonal relationships, like you've done me some harm uh, in some way or, or, or vice versa. But here we have a question about, well, precisely who has the standing to, 
to forgive here, tied up with questions about third-party forgiveness, whether, and philosophers will disagree here about whether this makes any sense or not, to forgive on behalf of another. But I think that the philosophical literature can at least give us some kind of uh, pointers, some kind of markers of the kind of questions we might need to ask and the kind of distinctions that we might need to make in, yeah. as we come out the other side of the coronavirus crisis and think about precisely who may uh, have the standing to forgive and who may need to be forgiven. One, one thing that I've reflected on uh, in, in terms of forgiving as, as a group or being forgiving of a situation or what, how, how people respond in a, in a situation, one thing that I've reflected on is how people, um, just, just for example around in our dinner table conversations, might, um, might make judgments and, that, and going back to the self-righteous judgment or the yeah. too judgmental. Uh, and, and that's something that I found um, just, just happening. This is just from, from personal experience in different conversations. As part of my job is to talk to people in different scenarios and find out what's going on. And perhaps there is a, a little bit of a lack of, a, of an attitude. Uh, you talked about that disposition in general of, of forgiven, forgivingness. And, and I wonder in this context, as we come out of this context, what hope might there be? to cultivate that? Is it that the situation might eventually just make us more, more forgiving? Or, you know, what hope do you think that, that, that there is as a philosopher? We can't predict the future. But what, what do you think um, lies ahead for us in terms of adopting this, this forgiving attitude at such an important time like this? Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting question, but a tough question. Um, and I guess the kind of hope that you have in mind here, it, it may depend on whether you think that uh, we're talking about hope for some specific identifiable outcome, mm. or whether it's closer to what the philosopher Jonathan Lear has called radical hope, where the situation appears so desperate that it's hope for something that you almost can't articulate to yourself, you almost can't imagine. And so maybe the kind of hope that we, uh, we need here which of those two things you think it is may depend upon how, how serious you see the problem of our tendency towards self-righteousness right. as being, yeah. right? In the sense that if you think that this is a problem that we can fairly easily overcome, then we may be able to hope for some concrete uh, example of, or some concrete imagined uh, future uh, in that kind of way. Or it may be that your view of the, the problem of our tendency towards self-righteousness, self we may think this is so fundamental to the human condition and so difficult to get beyond that our hope has to be something more in the more radical kind of sense, that we cannot imagine how we could get beyond this, and yet we hope that we might. Yeah. John, it's been uh, incredibly satisfying uh, hearing your, your responses to this. I think it's a, it, is a, it is a difficult time for, for many people and uh, we would do well to reflect on and exercise uh, for forgiveness. And I've really enjoyed uh, both hosting this series and, and, uh, but having you to, to wrap up the series has just been great. So thank you very much for, for, for joining us for this episode. Thanks to you, Nick, and thanks for your curation of this, uh, this whole series, which I think has been uh, a really, a really good thing to do, and to like the professional way in which you've done it, and it's been a, 
showcasing some of the work that we do in the Institute for Ethics and Society. Uh, it's been great. So it's been a pleasure and an honor to be uh, the final one in the series. And that was uh, Professor John Lippert on this series for Virtues for the Time. You can check out the whole series uh, on the Notre Dame website by going to the Institute for Ethics and Society page. Uh, just type in Virtues for the Time or uh, IES podcast on the site. It's also available on SoundCloud, Virtues for the Times, and on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we'll be leaving it up for a while, as I'm sure it will be uh, a while before we come through this yet. But thank you uh, for, for joining us on the podcast. Uh, we hope as an institute we've made a contribution uh, to, to the conversation. Uh, but for now, uh, I'm your host, Nick Zimmerman, wrapping up the Virtues for the Times series. It's been a pleasure. 